This week, could cloud cover ease climate warming? So any attempt to geoengineer by increasing cloud production essentially commits whoever's doing it to perpetuity to maintaining the clouds. And was the Amazon once an orchard? The general consensus at this point is that human civilization has had a prolonged impact on the Amazon rainforest. Plus a new way to treat multiple sclerosis and a roundup of this year's Nobel gongs. This is the Nature Podcast for the 10th of October 2013. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. You may not love cloudy days, but clouds are great for protecting us against global warming. They're formed when tiny bits of liquid and solid get into the air and join up into droplets. These tiny particles are called aerosols. Some aerosols are natural, like sea spray or desert dust. Others are made by humans, like car emissions or when burning coal, droplets. These tiny particles are called aerosols. Some aerosols are natural, like sea spray or desert dust. Others are made by humans, like car emissions or when burning coal. Aerosols can make clouds live longer and stay brighter, reflecting the sun's energy back into space. So if clouds can protect our world from warming, could we engineer them to make sure we're covered? Well, first we'd need to know more about how they form. Scientists know sulfuric acid is part of the process, and they think there's another ingredient needed, but its identity has been a mystery because clouds are so complicated to study. Now using a cloud simulating chamber at CERN, scientists are pointing the finger at amines, compounds produced naturally and from human activities like farming and factories. I called one team member, Jasper Kirkby, from the Goethe University of Frankfurt. It actually marks the first time we've ever identified exactly what the vapours are that are responsible for atmospheric nucleation. So that's why it's such a big step forward. And this faster nucleation rate tells us that there's more clouds forming? No, it's basically telling us what the fundamental processes are that are going on, the underlying chemistry and physics and the process rates that are responsible for atmospheric nucleation. So by providing these numbers, we can put in much firmer physics-based, measurement-based numbers into climate models, which will mean that the the results that come out of the other end will be more reliable. And does this rate differ as you move across the globe, where in different regions there's different levels of amine emissions? What we found was that above about five parts per trillion, it didn't matter how many more amines you added, it was saturated. So if there's less than five parts per trillion of dimethylamine in this case, then yes, the nucleation rate will decrease. But if there's more than that, it won't increase. We've reached a limit very, very quickly where the only limitation to the formation of particles is the collision rate of molecules in the atmosphere. On a molecular level, what's happening in the atmosphere as these chemicals come together? In every cubic centimetre, a single molecule is having 10 to the 10, 10 to the 11 collisions per second. And... With certain vapours in the atmosphere, some of them are sticking together and forming embryonic uh, clusters, which then grow, but only a few get big enough to form the cloud. So not only the so-called nucleation rate is important, but also the growth rate to get them up to a size that's big enough to seed cloud droplets. This initial formation of what's known as the critical cluster, that actually has to overcome an energy barrier And it's the addition of amines to sulfuric acid that helps it overcome this energy barrier 
and actually form new particles. So you've obviously done this experiment in a lab, but have you seen the same in the atmosphere? No, it's interesting. We in the laboratory are the first to observe that. And the problem is that in the atmosphere, it's extremely difficult to isolate these processes. And you can't actually see which are the interesting clusters and which are the ones that are doing nothing. When we do these experiments in the laboratory, we have none of these background spectator clusters and we see precisely what's causing the nucleation. So one of the important firsts in this, uh, in this measurement that uh, is coming out is that it's the first observation of amine nucleation, either in the laboratory or the atmosphere. And I have no doubt, now we've found it, that there will be all kinds of observations in the atmosphere, but so far nobody's seen it. So as amine emissions look likely to increase, what effect will this have on the climate? It's impossible at this stage to be quantitative. The simple answer is we don't know. What we do know is that aerosols are a very important cooling effect of human activity. The addition of amines will have a huge effect. It will definitely be significant. There's no doubt that amines have to be considered now. Sulfuric acid alone will not nucleate in the lower atmosphere. And because amines have very important anthropogenic sources, this certainly will be included in the next assessment of the IPCC. If these amines have such a significant cooling effect, could we take advantage of that to combat global warming? This is now a very serious uh, line of study, so-called geoengineering, and the main emphasis is can clouds be manipulated by continuous ejection of aerosols into the atmosphere to increase cloud cover. I think it has to be considered very, very carefully because there's an important characteristic about aerosols, and that is that they only exist for a few days or a week before they're rained out of the atmosphere. So any attempt to geoengineer by increasing cloud production essentially commits whoever's doing it to perpetuity, to maintaining the clouds. And if a, you know, a future American president decides from one week to the next to cut off the funding for the fleet of ships that's responsible for this uh, ejection of this material, then uh, from one week to the next, you'll get a sudden shock of the climate system. So uh, very, very careful studies should be uh, done before one considers anything like that. That paper by Jasper Kirkby and his team is at nature.com slash nature. Still to come in the research highlights, origami batteries and a new branch of the evolutionary tree. But first, we explore a new treatment for multiple sclerosis using an old drug. The body's nerve fibres are wrapped in a layer of insulation, like the plastic coating around electric wires. In multiple sclerosis, overactive immune cells destroy these protective sheaths. So most treatments for MS turn down the immune system, lessening the attack, but also leaving patients vulnerable to infection. Brian Lawson, an immunologist at the Scripps Research Institute in California, and his team had another idea. Why not rebuild the myelin sheaths that are under assault? His team identified dozens of chemicals that boost remyelination around nerve cells, including a drug that's been used for decades to treat another, very different, nervous system disease. He tells Nature reporter Ewan Calloway why this means that new MS drugs may be around sooner than expected. All currently approved, at least FDA um, drugs, treat the immune system as the main culprit, meaning that they're all immunosuppressives. But 
in general, none of them address the demyelination effect. They all address the immune attack. Do these immunosuppressive drugs, these drugs that kind of quiet an overactive immune system, do they work well for MS? Initially, they do work well. Eventually, depending upon what form of MS you have, the drugs fail to work, and despite the immune suppression, the disease progresses. The side effects, of course, is you're immunosuppressed, and that's generally not a state that we like to be in because it leads us open to various other infections that we don't normally um, see or, in very rare cases, succumb to. So this kind of explains why, why your team went looking for MS drugs that work differently. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's the demyelination that leads to loss of function. And so if you can fix that, then to some extent you can ignore the immune system. I mean, and I'm saying this from, as an immunologist, so you never like to ignore the immune system, of course. But in this case, we've tried the immunosuppressive route. Can we now try to treat the underlying CNS problem rather than trying to suppress the immune system from destroying the CNS? And that's really the novelty of this approach. Your, your team looked through hundreds, if not thousands, of different chemicals and, and, and tried to find those that, that prevent demyelination. One of them in particular stands out because it's already uh, approved to help with Parkinson's disease. Yeah, that's correct. That's um, benztropine. And benztropine has been around for decades, in fact. And in the mice, at least, it had profound efficacious effects to the point where at the peak of disease when the mice were most severe, paralyzed, within just a number of days, you could almost not tell them from a normal mouse. We actually tested it in head-to-head competition, so to speak, with um, current drugs that are on the market that are clearly immunosuppressants, and benztropine was able to at least inhibit the disease in mice as well as those two compounds. Actually, in several cases, it was even better than those two. Is the idea also, I think you explored this in your paper, that benztropine could potentially work in tandem with uh, immunosuppressive drugs traditionally used to treat MS? You know, it's going to be very difficult to go into a clinic and say, hey, we've got this new magic sauce, and why don't you guys prescribe this rather than what you know has been working for years? Particularly in MS, since you have two clear mechanisms of action, one of which is the, which is the immune attack and then followed by demyelination, and the current drugs are only affecting one side of that equation and our approach will affect the other side of the equation, so it just seems logical to combine the two. And that's, in fact, what we were able to do. In combination with immunosuppressants, we could greatly reduce the dose of both compounds, that is, benztropine and, let's say, in this case, fingolimod, which has a relatively severe brachycardia associated with it that's dose-dependent. Benztropine is also associated with rather severe side effects on occasion, which is also dose-dependent. So, Given the two in combination, you're able to achieve the same results as either one of them at optimum concentrations. However, very likely, because you're reducing them, you're able to greatly reduce any adverse events. Given that the main compound that you focused on, benztropine, is already FDA-approved, at least for Parkinson's, could this uh, lead to speedier application for MS? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The great amount of time in drug discovery is on the preclinical side in which you have to discover the compounds, you have to uh, characterize the compounds, you have to get pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. All these things have to be done way, you have to show safety, you have to show efficacy. All these things have to be done for any, what I'm calling the novel compound, which is an unknown, uncharacterized chemical structure. Um, In the case of FDA-approved compounds such as benzotropine, all that's already been done. 
And so at that point, it just becomes of, well, will this work in humans or not, rather than is this safe, which is always the concern with any new compound. Has your team talked with any physicians who treat MS patients? Yeah, we have, and they're excited about it. Again, there's always skepticism of, will the animal models translate to humans? And is this going to be safe for my patients? However, there is certainly excitement and awareness that this may be a, a new therapeutic approach. Brian Lawson talking to Ewan Calloway. Ewan's back in just a mo to tell us all about this year's Nobel Prizes. And in just a moment, we'll be sowing the seeds of an argument about the Amazon. But first, it's time for the research highlights read by Charlotte Stoddart. Origami can give you pretty paper animals. And now it can give scientists flexible batteries too. A team in the US used the technique on paper coated with carbon nanotubes so it conducts electricity. First, they attached electrodes to the paper. Then they folded it up into layers. The folded paper battery could store energy in a smaller area than an unfolded battery. Origami batteries don't yet perform as well as standard lithium-ion batteries, but the team thinks robot-assisted folding might improve this. Plus, they're cheaper to make than regular batteries. Find that paper in Nano Letters. The evolutionary tree has grown a new branch, and on it sits a new species of bacteria found in human guts and in groundwater. A US-based team studying microbes in these places found DNA sequences that were distantly related to ancient photosynthetic bacteria. With more sequencing, they worked out that their new bacteria needed a new phylum, or evolutionary rank, which they called melanobacteria. These bacteria don't have the genes needed for photosynthesis, nor for coping with oxygen. Instead, they probably generate energy by fermenting molecules containing carbon, and in exchange they may benefit their human hosts by making vitamins B and K. Read more in eLife. The Amazon rainforest is one of the planet's wildest places, but ecologists have reason to believe that not all of its current look is natural. Human hands may have shaped the forest we see today, and not just by commercial logging. Reporter Jeff Tollefson wrote a feature exploring the cultured past of the wild forest, and Noah Baker gave him a call. The Amazon rainforest is often seen as a kind of a pristine wilderness, sort of untouched by human exploitation. Is that a fair depiction? Probably not. I mean, the general consensus at this point is that human civilization has had a prolonged impact on the Amazon rainforest um, to varying degrees in varying places. The question that scientists are trying to figure out now is how big that impact was and whether we can you know, still see it in the forests that are alive today. And what kind of people are having these impacts? Well, it depends on your time frame. So today we tend to think about logging companies and massive land clearing, either for cattle ranching or for uh, soybean farming, a little bit of both. These are the modern pressures that a lot of people are familiar with. If you look farther back in time, you start seeing earlier civilizations, Paleo-Indians, maybe even four or six thousand years ago, that were cultivating uh, maize and manioc. And then if you go back further, we, we see evidence of cave peoples in the Amazon dating all the way back 12,000 years. I can see with big modern logging what evidence you can see for these these kinds of impacts. But what evidence can we see for more ancient civilizations modifying the Amazon? The first line of evidence is, is kind of charcoal, evidence of fire. 
Um, and you know, you, it's possible you can get some natural fire in the Amazon um, and during dry seasons on the edges. But by and large, fire is associated with human activity. Um, and we know that, uh, that humans have been setting fires there for thousands of years. In some places, you can actually find uh, terra preta. In Portuguese, this means black earth. Um, and it's, it's literally kind of a, a rich, dark, organic soil. And, and we know that it was made from kind of repeated burning and composting over time. And in, in places where we see terra preta, we know that there was a kind of a prolonged um, human presence and kind of an active soil management system, we believe. The Amazon rainforest is a huge place. How big an influence could these small tribal communities really have on the sort of the makeup of a whole rainforest? Well, the question is whether they were small tribal peoples or not. The old line of evidence coming from the scientist by the name of Betty Meggers and, and her husband at the Smithsonian, they made an argument dating back to the early 50s that the soils of the Amazon are, um, are very poor soils and that they wouldn't support massive civilization. We tend to think that in the past there were just sparse little villages, um, you know, here and there where people were eking out a living. But the modern evidence suggests that there might have been, you know, large civilizations organized with roads and bridges and canals in many places. The people in favor of who believe that there were large populations, what they say is that everywhere we look, we find evidence of substantial civilizations, of complex civilizations. And therefore, if we continue looking, we will find more. You say those that agree with this. Is this not a consensus across the whole community? Not at all. Um, it's actually been a significant debate that extends back, you know, kind of two decades. It, it's not clear what the forests would have looked like without people. Um, so one argument is that these forests kind of developed with people, that people have always been there. You're not suggesting that the Amazon was planted by people. It's not, you know, a huge, you know, cropland. It would just be modified and moulded to people's needs. That's right. Very few people would say that the whole of the Amazon was, was a giant orchard, um, although there have been people who have come close to suggesting as much. And what could this mean for the Amazon in the long term if there were people and large communities exploiting the Amazon in the past, does that mean that the Amazon could recover from exploitation in the present day? There are different sides to this debate. One side is kind of positioned that if you, if you don't understand what the human influence was in the past, then, then it's, it's harder to manage the forest that we see today. Some of these people will argue, you know, the fact that humans may have had an extensive and prolonged and, and heavy influence on the forest means that the forests are, in fact, more resilient than we tend to believe. You know, the other side kind of fears that this actually undercuts the argument for conservation. One thing that everybody does agree on is that it doesn't really change the management questions from a larger perspective in terms of what we're facing with deforestation today. If these forests are strong and resilient, um, that doesn't mean that, you know, that they can handle being hacked down by chainsaws and bulldozers. News time now, and joining me in the studio are Ewan Calloway and Richard Van Norden with much Nobel Prize news. Ewan first, let's do these uh, chronologically. On Monday, the prize for medicine or physiology was announced. What was it for? It was for something called cellular trafficking. Um, 
three scientists, James Rothman, Randy Shekman, and Thomas Sudoff, worked out how cells kind of move biomolecules throughout themselves and transport them to other cells. It's a process that's used in neurons to talk to other neurons. Um, it's used in the secretion of insulin. It's basically essential to pretty much any cellular process you can think of. And these, these scientists worked it out in a series of ex experiments in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So this is a pretty classic set of scientific experiments, starting with a finding and then working through kind of a pathway to establish how things connect up together. Is this a long-anticipated prize? I think it is a long-anticipated prize. I, I say that because um, the Lasker Awards, uh, which are sometimes called the mini Nobels, had sought fit to give out two separate awards, one in 2002 and one just this last year for this work. So in many ways, you could have seen this one coming. And has the work, which was done in you know decades ago actually already, has it had any implications for treating perhaps disease where cellular signaling is at fault? This is work that, that's so fundamental, it, it's textbook. I talked with one scientist and he said, you know, when, when we teach this stuff to, to graduate students and to biology majors, it's as if it's been there all, of, all along. I take it for granted. Um, it's so important for basic reasons and not so much applications. Okay, and from pretty basic biology to some pretty basic building blocks of physics, the least surprising perhaps of all the prizes, Richard. Yeah, everyone had their money on this one. It went to the Higgs boson. Well, it didn't go to the boson. It went to two theorists who thirst force of it in 1964. They were Peter Higgs of the University of Edinburgh and François Englert of the Free University of Brussels in Belgium. You say that everyone had their money on it, but inside knowledge tells me that our very own Ewan Calloway made a bet with The Guardian's Ian Sample in the opposite direction. So, egg on his face. Well, it was quite a quick award. The boson was only discovered uh, last year, July 2012. And that's just over a year between uh, discovery and prize. That's been matched only a few times before, uh, with prizes given for superconductors and for another fundamental particle, the, the W and Z boson. So it was a little unusual, but no one was really surprised. What was a bit more surprising was who was given the award. Just two theorists. Many more theorists were involved in working out this mechanism that, that gives rise to this particle, and thousands of experimenters were involved in building the increasingly large particle accelerators needed to find it. Quite right. So do you think in a future year there might be a kind of experimental Higgs prize? I think it's gone, actually. Uh, I think that's it. Um, the problem is how do you isolate a few experimenters, or as you give it to the institution of CERN, Practically speaking, ATLAS and CMS, the experiments at the Large Hadron Collider, are separate institutions. It would have been too difficult to recognise them all. And as for the other theorists, well, uh, Brout and Englert and Higgs were first. Brout died in 2011. And three other theorists uh, also uh, predicted this mechanism that gives mass to fundamental particles in 1964. But unfortunately, they were just too late. But they've been quite gracious. Tom Kibble at Imperial College, you know, paid tribute to Englert and Higgs and said, well, of course, I think I helped to work it out too. But understandably, I was a little bit later to print and the self-imposed rule that only three people can be recognised uh, means that, well, you know, that's that. Um, but I don't think there's any room for any more prizes on, on this one. You've clearly spoken to a couple of commentators and uh, other people who might have been in the running in writing your story about this. Did you manage to get in touch with Higgs? Well, Higgs is very canny. He deliberately made himself unavailable for any interviews. Um, he will be talking to the media later in the week. But he decided he'd go off somewhere in Scotland. People speculated uh, on a caravan holiday, but I'm not quite sure where he was. But very canny of him. He's really avoided this media storm. He might have been uh, observed, but we don't know to Three Sigma yet or something. Yeah, they really had trouble getting hold of him. 
All right, so so much for physics then. We've heard a lot about the Higgs this last year, and I'm sure we will continue to. Finally, the Chemistry Prize was announced just this morning. We're recording this on Wednesday. And Ewan, what topic won that prize? Well, as in, in the Nobel Committee's words, it was for taking the chemistry experiment to cyberspace. These three scientists, Martin Karplus, Michael Levitt, and Arya Vorschel, um, basically uh, came up with methods for modeling chemical interactions on computers. So before this, many chemists had just been experimenting at the bench in the lab. Now many chemists work with computers. Before their work in the 1970s, chemists were using computers, but they could only use computers to model relatively uh, simple, simple experiments. That's because although we used to, or we like to think that uh, molecules can be represented by sticks and balls that we played with in chemistry class, they're really kind of uh, amorphous structures with uh, clouds of electrons that are kind of hovering all over. And those, those kinds of interactions are best modeled by uh, the lovely world of quantum physics. Basically, think of a, a drug, uh, which is kind of a small chemical that's targeting a protein. You're really interested in the chemical interaction that goes on right where that drug binds to that protein, and you need quantum physics to do that. But meanwhile, other bits of the protein are moving around, and those interactions are important. But what these researchers determined was that you could use classical Newtonian physics to model the rest of the protein. So you get the best of both worlds. All right. Thank you, Ewan Calloway. It's been, it's been catalytic. Thank you to Richard Van Norden as well for your contribution. And with the last of the three science prizes, that's all from this year's Nobels. Thanks, Ewan. You can find stories about each prize online at nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Next time, we're piecing together the nervous system of an ancient scorpion-like creature. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>